85% of coastal land in Belize at this point has been sold to foreigners. Diabetes has actually played a huge role in that too. Many tracts of land that local families really wish they could keep for the next generation have had to be sold to cover medical bills, in particular for diabetes and other chronic conditions. I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Reads, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media. In today's episode, we learn about the connections between sugar, land, and health in Belize with cultural anthropologist Amy Moran Thomas and her book, Traveling with Sugar, Chronicles of a Global Epidemic. Like many Caribbean and Central American nations, Belize is a place where healthy and diverse farming systems have been violently replaced with sugar plantations. The legacy of that dispossession is yet another sugar-related violence, diabetes. In Belize, this public health crisis is spoken of with a poetic and haunting euphemism, traveling with sugar. So first of all, thank you so much, Amy, for joining us and for being a part of Real Food Reads. I've really enjoyed reading Traveling with Sugar. It's had so much vivid imagery that's been really stuck in my head. You know, I'm so honored to uh, to be here. So thank you for the invitation, Tiffany. The book is called Traveling with Sugar, Chronicles of a Global Epidemic. Uh, can you tell us what does it mean to be traveling with sugar? How did you come to this title? Yeah, um, so this is sort of an expression in Belize, just meaning like to live with a chronic disease. It has so many different meanings, you know, or I think it's a really just evocative turn of phrase that people use because it makes me think of all the kind of journeys for care that I saw people working toward. It makes me think of the entire sort of 500-year history of the Caribbean through which people came to live in the area where I met them. There can also be kind of a metaphysical resonance to traveling in some kind of you know, practices to, to get a passport can kind of double as a euphemism for death, for example. So it can mean kind of, I don't know, living in, in the face of death. At times it can mean dying, but also life beyond death. Yeah, I don't know. It just, it made me think of all these trajectories that I saw people, you know, working through as they struggled to survive and heal um, yeah, this was just an expression that struck me so much the first time I heard it. You open your book with this really vivid story of what um, interested you in pursuing diabetes in Belize. It's the story of someone that you would call Mr. P. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, um, that's something I'll never forget. So it was during my first visit to Belize back in 2008. And a community elder had invited me to sit with him and um, got out their family photo album and was kind of paging through, sharing pictures of his wife. I was just so struck by it because it was sort of, you know, in slow motion, like going through each page, you know, their lifetime together was sort of all archived there, their family as it was growing, you know, so much love in the images over the decades. But then as he was turning the pages, he got to a page where his wife's foot was missing. Um, and then a few pages later, it was her whole leg. And a few pages after that, it was the other leg too. In each loss, he would just say sugar and kind of keep, you know, keep moving through um, until one page, you know, she, she was gone. And for me, it was like, like seeing it for the first time, you know, like seeing diabetes and like through what their family must have 
gone through in losing her piece by piece like that. Um, I just kept thinking about it later, especially after I started hearing more stories of families who were dealing with those kinds of bodily gradual losses that they were working so hard to fight against. You know, as I started reading more, it turned out that diabetes is the leading cause of death countrywide in Belize. And all these community leaders were asking for more research just to kind of document what was happening to people, especially with how common amputations had become. So that's how the project started. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story. You focus on health issues in southern Belize, where many people identify as Garifuna, um, an Afro-Indigenous group spread out across the Caribbean. What is their history, primarily in regards to their connection to sugar and to land, and how does that like play into now diabetes being like the leading cause of death in Belize? You know, the islands in that area at that time were one of the most heavily populated um, geographies in the world. You know, as these processes of violence began with Columbus's arrival and all the explorers who followed him, it was some 90% of the Kalinagu population were killed in those few centuries by this whole, you know, series of European military invasions and epidemics and kind of just island after island across the Caribbean got turned into sugar plantations, except for one, which the Europeans labeled St. Vincent, but it was home to this growing kind of community of freedom fighters of indigenous and African ancestry. Colonial authorities at the time labeled them Black Caribs, but they came to call themselves Garifuna and managed to defend their land against European invasions for more than 200 years in this kind of incredible series of wars. But sugar played a huge role in that because the British wanted their land to make another sugar plantation. So finally, after all these campaigns in 1796, the British military kind of finally managed um, to exile the majority of the Garifuna families from their homeland. And from there, survivors kind of made their way to mainland Central America, you know, Honduras, Belize, Guatemala, Nicaragua, um, and eventually a community kind of extended even further to many U.S. cities. You know, it's an amazing history of survivance. Um, many descendants still speak Gary from the language of their ancestors, but sugar played this huge role in the reason their ancestral homeland was stolen by the British in the first place. In your book, you mentioned that Belize is known for its dependence on imported food, and the Garifuna people were prolific farmers on St. Vincent and continued to be once they arrived in Belize. Um, but in the present day, they're also highly reliant on imported processed foods, partially because there have been policies and structures that undermine small farming. So can you tell us a little bit about those mechanisms that were used to deny um, access to land and to undermine small farming? In Belize, there's been kind of a more subtle history of land dispossession. So in the 1850s, for example, there was something called the Laws of Force Act put in place by the British authorities in Belize, which gave white settlers from the United States and Europe, um, who were coming in large numbers at the time, retroactive legitimacy to the lands that Garifuna farmers had been cultivating for 50 years. Around that time, all these uh, Maya, Garifuna, and Creole people who had really pioneered agriculture in the colony were either denied titles to the land altogether or had to pay 25 times as much um, to the British crown as white immigrants did for the same land. So that was just one example of a policy that was really intended to discourage self-sufficient farming 
and push more people from those communities into wage labor on plantations, um, including sugar plantations that were being built by some of the Confederate uh, planters from the south of the U.S. who began arriving in Belize after the Civil War. There were more kind of undermining policies, you know, subtly over time. Just the governmental neglect of Garifuna land reserves, which were themselves colonial creations. Um, there used to be farming demonstrators in many villages, but they were defunded. The government just decided to stop selling the variety of rice that Garifuna farmers preferred to grow. So that was um, had major effects for their markets. And even today, Garifuna people in Belize are still struggling to be legally recognized as indigenous by the state. So the last kind of scene that I want to make sure to add to the picture here, you know, about 85% of coastal land in Belize at this point has been sold to foreigners. So some people call this the gentrification of Belize's coast. But diabetes has actually played a huge role in that too. Many tracts of land that local families really wish they could keep uh, for the next generation have had to be sold to cover medical bills, in particular for diabetes and other chronic conditions. Yeah, it's just it's kind of this haunting thing that, you know, sugar is involved in dispossession in such a different way than, you know, compared to, say, the times of St. Vincent. But still, somehow, sugar is playing this huge role in how um, land is, you know, being lost by Garifuna families and coming under the ownership of European descendants. Mm. So, um, and speaking about this uh, land theft and dispossession, can you tell me a little bit about how this legacy of the land theft and dispossession has impacted the Garifuna diet? I met a lot of people who wished they could farm but didn't have access to the infrastructures that were really supporting that, you know, Um, or if you compare it to something like trying to make a livelihood from tourism, for example, there's just a lot more of an infrastructure to plug into for certain kinds of work, you know, and there are still people who, you know, do certain kinds of farming as a labor of love, you know, so want to make sure to recognize that, but also there have been so many, um, ways that it's just more difficult to find vegetables in a lot of these places, for example. And in Belize, people kind of often go from villages to towns to buy vegetables, which are often imported, you know, from at times Mexico, but even as far as like the U.S. and Canada, you can tell from the little stickers on the produce in the market. So, you know, some of the effects of that are vegetables often end up being a lot more expensive than they are elsewhere in the world. So all those processes have led to more reliance on store-bought foods that um, are much less nutritious and um, less affordable. Yeah, all those things, I think, have really led to dietary change over time that many people wish wasn't happening, you know, but but somehow over time is. Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned diet is talked about so much um, as it relates to diabetes. And it also puts a lot of the onus on the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it's very limited to like, yeah, the individual immediate consumption and doesn't take into account anything else really, like the histories of land theft and dispossession and apartheid um, that create the sort of like reality where that diet is a diet that's available to some people. But something that is 
I feel like less commonly known and less talked about in the mainstream is are some of these other factors um, that can amplify diabetes risk. And you talk about um, exposure to pollutants and pesticides. In the book, you reference a study of 3,080 farm workers in India that reported exposure to insecticides, significantly um, increasing diabetes risk. Can you tell us a little bit how that sort of toxic exposure amplifies diabetes risk? Yeah, no, so many different chemical exposures have been shown to contribute um, to diabetes, especially endocrine disrupting chemicals since diabetes, you know, is a disease of the endocrine system. Yeah, in, in the Stan Creek district uh, where Dangriga is located in southern Belize, so many people, you know, live downstream from plantations or are dealing in different ways with chemicals in their waterways, their foodways. And so this issue has actually been so understudied in Belize that the best data I could find, which showed diabetes-linked pollutants in six out of six um, sites in the area, but it was collected by wildlife biologists, actually, out of concern for the health of jaguars. You know, but those same exposures have huge implications for the health of humans living in those same areas. Mm-hmm. You say in the book um, something along the lines of you need the numbers to direct this like global policy, but to get those numbers, you also need some sort of like policy or funding. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like this catch-22. Yeah, that's that's a quote from Adia Benton, who's a really amazing medical anthropologist. But yeah, kind of talking about the way stories that we tell end up shaping the numbers we collect and the numbers we collect end up shaping the stories we tell. And somehow both those things seem to be um, short-circuiting uh, when it came to attention to this issue in Belize. Um, So for example, there are great global statistics that are trying to track amputations, but they actually weren't attributing amputations to diabetes. They were assumed to be caused by car accidents, for example, in these accounts of DALI's disability-adjusted life years. You know, so there's all this global attention trying to understand people's disability needs that was collecting the wrong statistics for what people were actually going through. Um, Some five out of six amputations in Belize are thought to be caused by diabetes. Wow, that is such a huge number. And something that like me being based in the U.S. and haven't really thought about how big of a connection that is between diabetes and amputations, because I feel like the perception, reality, and treatment of it is different here in the U.S. than it is in other parts of the world and in Belize. Uh, can you speak a little bit to that difference? Yeah, yeah, and they are, they're all related. <laughs> so, and I think those common ideas of diabetes as, you know, pretty mild or being almost synonymous with obesity is another common depiction. And so I think when diabetes has been discussed at places, even like the World Health Organization headquarters, you know, those imaginations have historically likely been some of the impressions at play when institutions have decided that real transnational resources sort of aren't in order. Because I felt like the version of diabetes I saw constructed in a lot of the literatures from our global health institutions bore kind of very little resemblance to the conditions that the people I met were struggling to deal with. I think that kind of disconnection between an epidemic of obesity that was being imagined and an epidemic of sugar that was actually like much more devastating that was actually happening but not being, you know, recognized in certain global statistics and certainly not 
resourced by transnational programs. I think that kind of misfit paradigm had, um, yeah, had, had everything to do with how the set of an entire population's experiences being rendered illegible somehow, you know, by people who might have the medical and nutritional resources to deal with diabetes differently, but think they're familiar with it because it might be something that exists in, you know, their families too. Yeah. You say pretty early on in the book about how we tie it in the U.S. to obesity and and believes it's like a disease of disappearing. It's another one of those statements that just like lives in my head. So what are your theories about why diabetes treatment and the policy to advance that treatment hasn't been pushed as hard as treatment has been for other diseases like hookworm? Yeah. No, it's so striking, especially like, for example, the hookworm campaign in Belize, which was run by the Rockefeller Foundation. You know, they would put people in jail if they wouldn't take this medicine. Like they were so, um, you know, bent on making sure everyone had this particular medicine. So there's something so different about how these different kinds of conditions have become classified, you know, that like as part of these bigger imaginaries. I think there's something about infectious disease that fits into kind of colonial histories of tropical medicine, some Mm -hmm. sort of idea of intervention that more affluent countries are more comfortable with somehow, you know, or ideas of some kind of global south you know, as still being cast as a region of like endemic dangers by certain institutions. Um, and there are these ways that, uh, you know, contagion often gets racialized in those narratives. And I think it's probably not coincidental that affluent countries in North America and Europe have been least likely to support care programs to address the diseases they're most implicated in directly contributing to. I have to bring up COVID because, you know, we're still in the midst of it. I was just wondering, are there parallels that you see between the communication and action around diabetes and around COVID? Yeah. You know, in a biological sense, obviously COVID can be contracted like through one-time exposure where most diabetes risk tends to accumulate through many, you know, gradual exposures over time. But it's interesting, even that picture is growing more complicated. For example, there seems to be a population of people who have been left with type 1 and type 2 diabetes after having COVID. So actually, there can be sort of viral triggers for certain diseases, um, certain cases of diabetes too. Well, so they didn't have it before? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so in some cases, that might have been, you know, an undiagnosed case. But in some cases, it does seem to be actually like a new onset. And then having diabetes can make COVID so much harder to survive. But with all those interactions, I think the attention COVID has received in this short time and how upsetting these losses have been, you know, to think of the losses from diabetes every year are thought to number around 5 million, according to the International Diabetes Federation. You know, that's such a huge number. You know, and there are different estimates. For example, the World Health Organization says it's more like 2 million, which is still a completely huge number. <laughs> but to have 3 million people who might or might not be dying from a condition each year, I think really speaks to the lack of diagnostic attention, let alone care that could lead to recovery in that space. 
So I guess in the most general sense, the parallels I see between diabetes and COVID are the ways racial inequalities are playing out for both and directly interacting. I don't want to minimize COVID at all, but um, I wonder if that's something to do with sort of this like culture of capitalism, like love's silver bullet solution. Just like one thing and then we can get it over with as opposed to like addressing the root causes. And it feels like with diabetes, like there isn't a single solution to solve it. And so it's just left untreated and uncared for. Yeah. You know, as your question kind of prompts me to think about, I mean, a lot of it has to do with what therapeutic markets are profitable. Mm. Can you speak more to that? So if you look at the global map of where most diabetes mortality occurs, it's very disproportionately in the majority world. And yeah, I think there is that complicated question. For example, I read about the work of one doctor who was trying to make a heat-stable form of insulin uh, since so many people you know, require insulin in areas that might not have consistent refrigeration, for example. It would be like really useful in those areas to have a kind of insulin that didn't require refrigeration. And the Gates Foundation wasn't willing to fund it because um, it couldn't also sort of reach a market in a more affluent area, or there wouldn't be need for that product in places where people could afford refrigerators, for example. Um, At least according to his account, that was why they turned down uh, funding the proposal. You say uh, Belize is relatively unpolluted compared to most places on the earth, and it also has one of the smallest carbon footprints in the world, and yet it is heavily impacted by pollution and by climate change. You write this in the book, and it's just like the visual really stuck in my head. So you say the most visually prominent of this title trash uh, in regards to pollution um, were plastic bags floating in the waves like listless jellyfish and styrofoam known in Belizean Creole as sea bread, as if even the earth was being fed a sick diet. So the earth is being fed a sick diet. How is that impacting the diet of people? Yeah. And, you know, it really is thinking about how dramatically, you know, climate change and other ecological processes are having huge consequences um, for the food that's available to people among so many other things. So especially in places that were historically fishing villages, you know, there's all this coral reef bleaching, all these ecological consequences kind of cascading from warming and other processes of environmental disruption that have really depleted the local fish populations. Um, So that's led to fish at market becoming a lot more expensive. Historically, that's always been a very kind of accessible, healthy, you know, lean protein for people. So that's had major consequences. And that kind of cruise ship dumping that the the scene you just mentioned brings to mind, you know, those kinds of microplastics in the ocean also have endocrine disrupting properties that can contribute to diabetes. So um, there were these, you know, very direct ways where these harms to the surrounding environment become embodied by people, you know, physically, but also kind of Emotionally and relationally, there are so many other registers of those consequences. And there are huge implications of climate change for farming, too. So, you know, weather patterns changing, hurricanes becoming more common, flooding is more common, 
And all that kind of adds extra unpredictability to food markets that have already been difficult for farmers to scale up within. And climate change can even change the nutritional content of certain crops, you know, leave them with less protein, fewer nutrients. So yeah, there's so many ways that the land of health and people across time are are always related. Mm -hmm. So when thinking about the environment, the area in which people live, how do those factors change the way that we can think about epidemics and how contagious they are? Yeah, I've struggled for the language for this <laughs> because I think we're so used to talking about diabetes as a non-communicable disease. And at some point, I started to feel like that wasn't the right word. I, I started to think about this idea of like paracommunicable diseases because so many of the people I met described how diabetes felt and appeared like a, a contagious disease to them. So people talked about catching it, um, being worried about catching it from others, or you know, feeling so much anxiety about the possibility of giving it to their kids, which can be, I mean, it's such a painful worry. So I found myself looking for terms to try to kind of acknowledge people's observations about how the condition was moving in ways that were non-communicable doesn't seem like the right word. But um, at the same time, kind of pointing back out at all these external exposures, you know, in the world, in surrounding environments that in some sense are kind of somehow communicating and, you know, materially transmitting disease risk over time. You know, when people can't afford what they would want to eat, those other kind of chemical and environmental exposures, interactions with coexisting diseases. Um, there's whole histories of trauma that can accumulate in the body you know, through epigenetic changes and other processes. I, I think focusing on those exposures and ways to, you know, think about minimizing those harms became something I was just trying to find words for. You mentioned um, with the title of the book, Traveling with Sugar, and it made you think of sort of like the journeys of care that people go on. So you mentioned how many Belizeans respond to this like injustice of lack of care by um, trying to leave the country or going on a journey of care uh, in hopes for a better future. And that obviously isn't the case for everyone. There are others who stay and like agitate and advocate. And I'd love for you to share the story of Jose Cruz. Yeah, no, that was such an amazing you know, movement to see unfold. Yeah, as you mentioned, there were so many individuals who were kind of like trying to navigate care with all this resourcefulness to get somewhere else where there was an infrastructure, you know, to go to Guatemala City or, you know, Chetamal in Merida in Mexico um, or somewhere in the U.S. And that can often be kind of the most immediate path to um, potential therapeutic access. But it, it can mean that um, those health infrastructures within Belize don't end up kind of growing through that process the way there have been some kind of more populist, say, movements um, toward health in the histories of Mexico and Guatemala. So it was amazing to see the story of a dialysis patient named Jose Cruz who had managed to get access through a, a family member's generosity um, to a certain number of dialysis sessions. But there's this huge line for people who need 
dialysis in Belize and um, kind of there, there just wasn't enough space. And so you kind of became a leading voice in um, what many people called kind of the first patient-led health movement in the country where people kind of came together in protests. Jose Cruz a few times refused his dialysis sessions that were assigned to him through um, what people called a scholarship program because they weren't accessible to others. And he began holding what he called press releases every time another part of his body was about to be amputated, kind of just asking people to, um, to make photos, to tell stories about this, like to recognize that this was happening to so many other people, um, not only to him. And through this kind of advocacy that grew over time, and there, there were international partners that came to be involved, as well as the national government, but there was this kind of culminating moment where a, a new dialysis center opened in the country, and some people were able to access dialysis there three days a week for a time. Um, and Jose Cruz, um, he died a few months after I interviewed him, but the, the dialysis center was named for him. So that felt like, um, I don't know, a living memorial. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear from you. Um, how are the Garifuna people building and struggling for food sovereignty in Belize? So the last chapter of the book profiles some of the pretty amazing work that a Garifuna farming cooperative has been doing, um, trying to scale up their line of organic products. Um, they're trying to make a cereal that could be used in local schools, for example. So a lot of what they were kind of running up against was um, just that lack of infrastructural support. They've been fundraising for almost 10 years now um, for this processing machine, you know, but because processing these organic peanuts by hand takes so much time that it just sort of delimits the scale they're actually able to deal with. And there was one year where it was really heartbreaking. They had just all these tons of peanuts that had to be like dumped back into the swamp basically because they couldn't be processed. Um, but they had this, you know, they have a completely amazing vision. There just wasn't kind of that infrastructural boost to um, help them scale up. Yeah, so I'm glad to hear that some of the storytelling has brought some kind of more resources to the really important work they're doing. They were able to finally purchase the the machine, but I'll be really excited to see what they do next. And there are so many, um, you know, people who are trying to do work like that, just kind of missing that little infrastructural boost. I'm also really inspired by the work of physicians like Dr. W, who leads this diabetes foot care group that's, you know, caregivers from across the Caribbean, as well as some physicians in New York. They are trying to build a foot care clinic in Belize that would actually include a kitchen and a garden. Um, kind of alongside medical treatment. And I just um, really admire how they're thinking about recovery from diabetes in these really expansive ways, you know, about relationships to land and meaningful food choices for families as kind of being inseparable from the kinds of, you know, therapeutic access that can help people heal. I think there's so much hope in that vision. That's great. 
I just want to say thank you again so much for having this conversation with me. Well, thanks so much for the invitation and your questions. I'm Tiffany Patton, and this is Real Food Reads, the book club and podcast from Real Food Media. To learn more about our guest, Amy Moran Thomas, and her book, Traveling with Sugar, Chronicles of a Global Epidemic, go to our website at www.realfoodmedia.org. There, you'll find a link to a free PDF version of the book and more information about the Garifuna, including ways to support the work in Belize. Our next episode features longtime food systems analyst Ken Meter and his new book, Building Community Food Webs. Thank you for joining us.